Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Uh, in case you didn't listen to my previous episode with Leslie Hudson Reynolds, I wanted to say again that my book Embodied is available for pre-order uh, on Amazon. That's Embodied. Subtitle is Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. It is sort of a biblical theology um, and scientific engagement with the whole overarching transgender conversation. Very much like my book, People to Be Loved which many of you I know have read. Um, it's it's kind of a people to be loved for the transgender conversation. It's it, it gets pretty deep academically. I try to keep the language very conversational, but it has, I think, over 18,000 words in the end notes. In fact, the publisher, I had to, you know, um, I think... <laughs> My publisher almost lost her minds when they saw the manuscript and they're like, you have 18,000 words just in the end notes. And I'm like, well, I, I, this conversation is too delicate, too sensitive. I cannot say a single word without backing it up with research, with evidence. So it's, it does, it, it felt like an academic book when I was researching and in some ways writing it. And yet I tried to, as I always do, write in a very conversational way. There's lots of stories, lots of scientific research. We consider the transgender conversation from all angles. Um, and so go check it out. Embodied over at Amazon, or I guess I should say wherever books are sold, which we all know that that just means Amazon, right? Okay. My guest on today's show is Bill Henson. Bill Henson. Actually, I met Bill through Leslie. Um, that's right. Bill and Leslie were friends before our, I met Leslie. Leslie reached out to me through social media many years ago. And Leslie said, well, you got to meet my friend Bill. And so Bill and I have become good friends over the years. Bill has been a a almost like a father figure mentor to me in the LGBTQ conversation. Bill has trained over 5,000 church leaders in the, in the LGBTQ conversation. Um, he has worked with, I mean, thousands. No, I'm sorry. No, I got that wrong. He's trained over 50,000 Christian leaders. I said five, no, 50,000 Christian leaders. And then he's guided over 4,000 families um, who have LGBT loved ones. He's the author of one, uh, I mean, I would say my favorite resource when it comes to understanding and loving um, LGBT people. Um, It's called Guiding Families of LGBT Plus Loved Ones for Every Pastor and Parent and All Who Care. You can find it at guidingfamilies.com. And Bill Henson is the founder and leader of Posture Shift. You can go to postureshift.com, check out more about his work that he's been doing for many years. All right, please welcome to the show the one and only Bill Henson. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with my good friend, uh, Bill Henson. Bill, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Preston. Honor to be with you. So for those of you who don't know, um, Bill, uh, Bill, I mean, in, just in my life has been a, um, a, a friend and, and mentor from a distance for a long time in this conversation. We met early on. And I mean, you uh, just, I still remember some of our early conversations and you just had paradigm shifting thoughts and advice in in how I approached the conversation about LGBTQ related questions and people. Um, And just over the years, I've just learned so much from Bill. So 
if anybody out there is like, oh, I've learned a lot from you, Preston, just know that you have, you too have been mentored by Bill because there's few things that I say that haven't either been just jacked from uh, something you've said, Bill, or at least significantly shaped by it. So um, I want to hold up a resource here that um, is absolutely incredible. And this is, I know, Bill, that you put a lot of time and energy into this. It's called uh, Guiding Families of LGBT Plus uh, loved ones. Um, it, I mean, I would say, well, I'll, let me just do this. <laughs> uh, I'm not just, I'm not just saying this. I actually have a quote on the back saying this is my number one go-to resource. If you are LGBT, but especially if you're not LGBT plus, but have a loved one in your life, whether you're a pastor with a congregant, a father with a son, son with a or father, whatever. If you have some loved one in your life that's LGBT plus mm-hmm. and you're not, then this is a resource you have to get. Um, Bill, where can it's only available on your website, right? Do you want to direct them to where they can get this resource? Sure, uh, you can get guiding families at guidingfamilies.com. Oh, easy. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's uh, let's go back and talk about your ministry. Um, lead them home. Now I, I talked to Leslie the other day and you're doing a, a bit of a rebrand, right? Or, or trying to focus more on posture shifts. So I don't want to, um, is it still lead them home technically or? Yeah, technically uh, the nonprofits established as lead them home over the years. Uh, the way that we've ended up equipping leaders has been through posture shift. The way that we've ended up helping families has been through guiding families. So okay poshashift.com, guidingfamilies.com. We're really going with that identity okay. just primarily because uh, a pastor will usually refer to us based on posture shift. Right. A family will refer to us based on guiding families. Okay. Take us back to the very beginning. How did you get into this work? I mean, you were a successful, um, you had a successful life in, in the so-called secular world or whatever, and you decided to give that up and um, do this work, which I'm, I know hasn't been easy. It, Give us the overview of how you got into that. Yeah, it was uh, 2003. And by that point, I was very much into uh, missions. I had taken the uh, Dr. Ralph Winter's Perspectives in, on World Missions course. Uh, and um, I'd been on probably about 22 mission trips in, I think, about six countries around the world. And that's all on like vacation time uh, with, a, with a full-time secular job. So vacation time was pretty much spent going on mission trips. And it it became very clear that the way that we approached missions in an international context was that we could allow for all kinds of complexity, and that complexity wouldn't necessarily be considered controversial. It'd just be considered the reality of the world. We have to reach people where they are as they are. But then when we moved into a domestic context, there are people groups, uh, even family members, uh, co-workers, friends, that if they're, you know, LGBT, suddenly we don't look at it through a missiological framework. We look at it through a moralistic framework. And so the the complexity read as uh, controversial to even love someone at that time who's LGBT. It's like people could ask what did you let go of biblical theology all because you're just, you know, loving someone well. So it became uh, very clear to me that um, we, the church really didn't have a missional reach 
uh, to LGBT folks. And there were a number of things that played out uh, that continued to lead to the calling uh, to go into this work. But it really started with a strong uh, missional foundation um, that was really the driving uh, factor in God call- calling us to this work. Yeah, I love that. That that was one of the paradigm shifting things in my own mind because I, my wife's an MK. We have a strong missions heart. We've been overseas many times, and and even like even in the as you know in the missions kind of conversation, the different approaches to doing um, missionary yes. work. And uh, I very much sided with you. Go, you learn the history, the language, the nuances. You absorb yourself in the culture, and and you understand the different nuances. You don't just come in, start preaching the gospel in English to a French speaking person while saying, I can't drink your wine because I'm a Baptist. You know, like that just doesn't, <laughs> unfortunately that's yeah. a real story. That's not, <laughs> I've got a friend who <laughs> I'm just back in the seventies. Hopefully they don't do us anymore, but um, they had an admission organization had a no drinking policy and they were sending people to France. Do you know the slap in the face it is when you are invited over someone's house and they bring out the best wine from their region, the wine grower, they probably is a family member and they bring out this bottle of wine and you say, no, like the the, the kick in the face that, but that's exactly what you're getting at. Right. I mean, that's, that's a missiological blunder um, that hinders the gospel going forward. Um, And we've done that many ways in this conversation, haven't we? Yeah. And there's a couple of very famous examples. Uh, Hudson Taylor ends up doing, probably learning by making mistakes to do all the right things to reach Chinese people for Christ in a faraway land. And there are missionaries that look at his contextualization of the gospel to people where they are as they are, Mm -hmm. and him getting close to them culturally and the way he dressed and all that. And there are accusations coming at him. He's a heretic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all of us. And so that's, a, that's an example of what we deal with a lot today is, you know, try to love people really generously. And some people will quickly question your theological uh, orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, another example, um, just getting m- more cl- uh, c- close to the realm of morality or immorality. Missionaries in Africa learned a long time ago, you don't go in and moralistically just go and unwind polygamous marriages. Mm-hmm. The The only end result of that kind of forceful work, if you will, was the gospel did not advance and where it did through that kind of repentance, if you will, for uh, forced or manipulated, there were there were two groups of people that were left in desperate, destitute poverty, uh, and that's women and children. Mm. So uh, missionaries have learned over the years not to change moral truth, not to compromise scripture, but to say, no, no, we really do have to be very careful about how we take Jesus in us to people where they are as they are. We have to take Jesus. We can't take our own discomfort and our urgent demands that people get from point A to point J uh, instantly or else the gospel's not working. We've got to lay down our lives for people till our final breath. We've got to have a long-term view rather than kind of these short-term impulses and anxieties that we carry. So good. All right, give us a crash course. This is a... Um, a missions perspective on the LGBTQ plus conversation. What are some, 
in the same way that if I was going to be a missionary to France and I would say, all right, here's some real big picture stuff you need to understand about the French culture that you're not going to be very effective until you understand these things. What are some things as Christians who have a heart to reach LGBTQ people? What are some big picture things that they need to understand through a mission, sort of a missions lens? Sure. Uh, just like any best practice uh, missiology, you have to understand that, that people are part of a people group. And people with a minority, uh, uh, with a minority experience often will experience uh, different versions of oppression, persecution, discrimination, mistreatment, victimization. So now let's look at what missionaries would do if they're trying to reach any people group in the world, history, culture, language. By culture, what is it like to be LGBT? When we go to history, we find uh, horrific um, abuses in the Holocaust, uh, incarceration, uh, LGBT folks, mainly gay men, placed in concentration camps, uh, going to their death in concentration camps. Uh, we have discrimination and violence against LGBT people um, that has continued even up to the present day. Uh, we have the the murders of young people like Matthew Shepard. We have clusters of LGBT youth suicides that um, have happened because of bullying and, uh, and and rejection. We have high rates of homelessness due to family rejection. We have the Pulse shooting. Uh, um, we have so many examples in history where we can look at that just objectively and say, whoa, I've I've only looked at gay people through a framework of morality or immorality. Mm. Oh my gosh, this is a vulnerable people. And as an example of how history repeats itself, um, 2020 is shaping up to be one of the most violent and dangerous mm. years for trans people, mm. uh, mainly uh, trans women. Mm. Uh, there are something like uh, 28 murders that have taken place of trans women, all of them are trans women uh, mm -hmm. in 2020. And l it's almost at a point where there's a, there's a new example uh, every week. Um, one example, two trans women uh, burned alive in a vehicle mm -hmm. to their deaths in Puerto Rico. Uh, and a lot of these deaths more being on the, in the 50 states. You, uh, so those 28 murders, we're talking about in the US, the continental US. So that's an example of history. Okay, that humbles me. That makes me realize, whoa, I actually do have to care about people. By the way, I want to care about people, but I'm just saying this can change the posture of someone that is only looking at how outside of God's will someone is. It can suddenly say, whoa, whoa, no, I have a responsibility before God, a holy God, to make sure I'm taking his love and his care and his protection to highly vulnerable people. Okay. Uh, it, when we look, when we stack on top of that history, growing up gay, there's a common experience, feeling different at an early age, being treated differently, being mistreated for years and years of a young life before a kid even knows that they're LGBT. Um, that sets into their brain chemistry a trauma, a long-term trauma, uh, the continual anticipation that my every hour of every day or my everyday life might bring upon me another event or an experience of someone attacking me or criticizing me or pushing me against the lockers 
or uh, shoving me against the bus or downstairs. You know, so LGBT youth, even in 2020, are still reporting that the mistreatment uh, in their early developmental years before they even know that they're gay is that's very common experience. And so kids like that will see they have a higher rate of depression, isolation, suicidality because of mistreatment. And then if you stack on top of that, churchy people like us not caring for them well, maybe even excluding them, seeing them as a risk or a threat to the church. Mm -hmm. And in the process, teaching parents, in a sense, to kind of cut off your kid or reject your kid, possibly even disown your kid. So homelessness is a problem. LGBT youth probably account for, let's just say roughly, uh, the rate will go down into adulthood, but in their early teens, say 10 to 12% of their age group population, yet they account for 20 to 40% of homeless wow. youth in America. And then I'll, I'll take a pause just to see if we want to talk about any of that. But the third piece would be language. And we can uh, talk about uh, just a couple of language uh, 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 yeah. language ideas in a moment. I definitely want to get into that. I, um, my, quick, my quick thought, you kind of went there. But when, as you were going, I wanted to ask, how is all this is, or is this magnified if they're raised in a Christian context? And you kind of hit on that. Is, that, is there... Everything you're describing, um, does that happen? Well, it's kind of a softball question, <laughs> but I'll just ask it as if I don't know the answer. But, I mean, is it better or worse when raised in a Christian context typically? Um, it, it can go either way. When we meet a lot of the kids that have had the most extensive bullying, when we're asking them for a self-report of where that bullying occurs or the risk of it occurs, 98% of the time, kids are saying, all age groups are saying, it was walking to the bus, at the bus stop, on the bus, getting off the bus, at school, um, during recess, during lunch, in the hall breaks between class, uh, making, my, making my way home from school. So thankfully, I don't know a single church leader that would ever want that to occur within the youth group or the church. And I don't know um, any church leader. I, I know that there are some that exist, but I don't know any church leaders that we train that would tolerate it, tolerate it for even a second. It would not be allowed. So uh, one kid, I asked him this question. I, I said, why do you think that, you know, like, the church is known for being so hateful. The school is known for being so progressive, accepting, but the bullying is occurring at school. Why isn't it occurring at, at church? And this kid, 15 years old, he said, well, I mean, ultimately, you know, we believe in Jesus and Jesus is about God's amazing grace. So I have to think that even if there's kids that don't like me or like that I'm gay in youth group, that, um, Possibly they're just giving me grace, mm -hmm. if you will. I thought that was, let me be clear. I thought that was very mature on his part to put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, now, reality, that doesn't mean bullying doesn't occur at church. And right. it doesn't mean condemnation, rejection, acts of exclusion don't occur. They do. But when we hear of the most uh, 
you know, graphic forms of bullying and exclusion and rejection, mm -hmm. a lot of that's occurring actually in very secular settings. What? So I'm thankful for that. At the same time, in church, there can be a lot of silence and just yeah. not addressing anything at all. Well, guess what? In the LGBT heart, that silence will be interpreted as a continual risk of that same condemnation, threat, or harm that is occurring in their life at school. So kids may not be bullied at school, at church, but they could actually carry the trauma of living with fear every time they go to church all throughout their growing up years. And, and let me just say this, based on everything you're saying, or in light of everything you're saying, that you've worked with four or 5,000 different families yeah. and 10, I mean, no, 50,000 church leaders, 60,000. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. just so everybody knows, Bill, <laughs> Bill's not just basing this on an example or two. Like this is about as comprehensive of a background as I've ever seen in terms of doing this kind of work. Um, I, I do wonder though, and I, I and all I have is anecdotal kind of yeah buts, you know. Um, but like, you know, I live in conservative Boise, Idaho. It's seventy percent Trump voting, right? Uh, well, I sorry, Idaho is Boise's a little more progressive. I mean, relative to the rest of the yeah. state. But like at my daughter's junior high, there was a trans person there, and I asked my daughter, you know, oh, did do they get mocked or made fun of? She's like, are you kidding me? They're like the most popular, like whatever person i said does anybody ever say anything negative so well if it is it's like they don't say it out loud because that would be the worst to ever say anything critical of this person they've got the most friends the most popularity or whatever and when i talk to other friends in more maybe more progressive cities like one of my friends in downtown portland he says they literally have quotes of Karl marx like all over the school um if you're a white straight male you you're basically like immoral just by your existence you know and like <laughs> another friend of mine is a teacher in california she literally said i think about i want to say about 20 percent of the kids are like transitioning on hormones and she they're calling me saying what is this i don't what's going on and um so i i could hear somebody saying and just I, all and these are just anecdotal so i mean I, I don't know if that's the exceptions to the rule but it seems like everything's swung so quickly toward affirmation in the broader Ooh. society how, how would you what would you say to that would you say well, that hasn't necessarily trickled down into every kind of high school setting there's a lot more homophobia there than you would think or is this certain areas i mean kansas or so not to pick on kansas but i mean like are they or bible bell areas and and not sure. downtown boston or whatever the, the, the way i would describe it is it only takes one bully okay and it potentially only takes uh, like uh, average age that boys start being called some name that represents something within the realm of sexuality, second grade. Oh, okay. The number one word that they are called in second grade, fag. Yeah. Okay. Now, in kids in a, just the generation right before this, it could be have been a lot worse than that, right? Yeah. Stacked fag and then being pushed around and all that stuff. Even in this generation, kids can still be experiencing bullying because there's one or there's three or there's five people or probably guys that are pushing on a kid during lunch or uh, saying something or whispering under their breath or saying something really ugly and suspicious 
uh, when they're using the bathroom at the same time, something like that. Here's a real life example. In the, after now, in the aftermath of Pulse, mm -hmm. how many pastors do you know that said something like this? We just wish that club would have been bigger so that more homosexuals would have been in that club so that God could have done away with more of that abomination. Okay, Preston, I imagine in your uh, leader forums, you probably don't know a single pastor that would ever say such yeah, a thing, yeah. right? And I don't know a single pastor that would ever say such a thing. Yet, one voice traveled so far and so many LGBT people that have either been propelled outside the church or never grew up in the church, that is what the evangelical faith represents to them because that is the hateful mm -hmm. thing that they heard in the aftermath of Pulse. That makes sense. Now, if we extrapolate that across a kid's experience, it only takes one or two or three guys that, or, or, or people that represent a bullying attitude. And in our world today, we know... Doesn't it seem like it'd be impossible that they're actually racist? You know, I mean, it seems like, oh, surely we work through that. Oh, but guess what? Yeah. Some of those folks that have racist ideas are maybe closer to us than we ever imagined. Yeah. And so, you know, it doesn't take much for that experience uh, to, to be a real one. The way I say it is uh, minority people's will tend to experience the worst case scenario of the most extreme people mm -hmm. who have horrible ideas about them. So if, a, if I, as a majority person, white, cisgender, male, I might, I might go through my daily life for years and, mm -hmm. and only passively engage that, but be able to walk away from it. For uh, a, a, a young uh, person of color, that could be the, their daily fear that they live with. And so I think LGBT folks can carry that daily fear with them mm -hmm. in, in a way that leaves a, a trauma scar. I, I could see the in elementary, I could definitely see, even if the, some of those elementary school kids will, you know, get a little more progressive or kind of realize that that's like, like not every fifth grade bully is going to call a, third grader a fag because he's effeminate is going to be that way in junior high or let's just say high school would that yeah. be accurate that the that, that kind yeah. of bullying which can be super severe is more likely to happen in elementary and so a lot of them might grow out of it but like you're saying even if like 0.1 yeah. of the kids are bullies that's all it takes right is that is that kind of right. where you, i mean yeah but also uh the re okay number one or a couple of reasons why bullying stops in high school. Number one, kids could have gone through their sexual development and they're not as paranoid about their own experience and what that means. They'll be more sure of themselves. Number two, it is cool to be LGBT in our world today. At least it seems that way in secular culture. Mm -hmm. Gay kids are not always reporting that on the front line. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, it, there is a factor there that it's cool. Um, the third, uh, el the third element is that, you know, you get to a certain age and you push a kid down and, and his head busts open, you can be charged with a crime. Yeah. So there's some corrective factors that kind of do away with the vast amount of the bullying uh, in the high school years. But this is the key. In the middle school years, it'll get worse 
for the kids that do experience mm-hmm. bullying, teasing, it'll usually get worse before it gets better in the middle school years. Okay. So the elementary years, it's not just one and done. It's oftentimes it starts and it's actually ongoing or it's actually escalating through middle school years. um, And then it will stop. Okay. Now this is the key. If it started with even a potential threat in second grade that caused that kid to internalize I have to go to school every single day living with when I walk around this corner, will so-and-so be waiting on me? Mm. You know, okay, we're talking about kids that are, you know, seven, eight, nine that are carrying repeated acts of victimization, of trauma, or bullying, or the fear of it, age eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. In other words, it's shaping mm into their brain chemistry, this anticipation of concrete harm. To me, whether the bullying occurred once or 10 times, excuse me, I would prefer it only that it did not occur at all, but if it was going to occur, I'd want it to occur only once rather than 10 times. But the fact is, even if it occurred a few times, that could produce in that kid the, such an anticipation or fear that it's gonna continue that literally they live their daily life as if the bullying is ongoing. So this is trauma mapped into brain chemistry. It can impact learning, it can impact safety, it could impact personal identity development. What I mean by that is just like that idea that, hey, I've got good ideas. Hey, I I can contribute. Wow, people see me as intelligent. People see me as smart. People see me as a contributor. My ideas are valuable or my integrity is seen as a person of value. Those kind of things can be stripped away from a young person at the very point where it's supposed to all be coming alive in them. And I've even talked to friends of mine who are raised in pretty healthy Christian homes, loving parents, you know, that when they did end up coming out, it actually went really well. Even then, some of them wait two, three, four, five years with loads of anxiety and I mean, depression, suicidality, all this yes. stuff, just with the fear of what could happen when they come out. And the yeah. parents like, why didn't you tell me this before? And the, and the kid even looking back is like, my, my parents are awesome. Like I, but, and that's like best case scenario. So there's still like, you're saying years of yeah. anxiety that a 13 year old kid is bearing alone like that. The human yeah. body isn't, I mean, p- kids are resilient. You know, but I, we're just not designed to carry that level of intensity and anxiety alone at that young of an yeah. age, right? Are you? Do you see the same yeah. thing? I mean, that's yes, we see the same thing. And what gets undervalued in uh, this when parents are surprised? How can you? When parents say, "How could you think that we would not love you?" Yeah, you know. Well, if that young, if their child had experienced mistreatment at school. What we miss is how homosexuality or sexuality in general might have actually been discussed in the family Mm. when a relative came out or there is a relative that got disowned by the family in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. And that is a known fact. Uh, A show comes on or a news report comes on and suddenly that child is hearing their parents talk about something very politically but that thing they're talking about, they're talking about it as if it's out there over there and maybe a little bit of condescension or disrespect or even 
ugly, much more ugly language. So that child has internalized a fear, maybe from outward harm mm -hmm. that's been done or the fear of it, but also, um, you know, like maybe that child just had one youth leader who didn't handle the unwant, the, the teaching of uh, traditional mm -hmm. biblical sexual ethic so thoughtfully. And now that child is afraid of the youth pastor, the senior pastor, the executive pastor, the elder board going on a mission trip. I mean, that unwinds not just personal identity, it could unwind faith identity. And if my faith identity is un being unwound by all my fears, then I could actually be attributing that even to, or the possibility of it even to my parents. Now, in 2016, uh, there's a denomination, it's public information, but I still just like to be respectful. It's a denomination of very, very highly respected denomination, very, very uh, orthodox in, in its beliefs, uh, very uh, deeply, uh, the way they live out the gospel is very beautiful. But there was a study that came out of one of their universities that showed 9% of their families were disowning their LGBT kids. So all of a sudden, we're like, wow, I meet all these pastors that are so loving and caring. I meet all these parents that are loving and caring. In the evangelical world, I cannot promise a kid, hey, just come out to your parents. It'll yeah. be okay. It's like a 9% chance that of any one parent could potentially have a very rejecting response, possibly even disowning their child. Uh -huh. Golly. Let's uh, go to the third one. There's a long uh, um, delay here, not delay, but lingering in, a, I think, a really important point. But yeah, the third point is l understanding the language. And honestly, Bill, I, I I have become so particular about language over the years, so particular. Um, you know, I when people say transgendered instead of transgender, I'm like, no, get the D off there. You know, like there's every little thing. I just I'm and I got that from you, man. You was you instilled in me just that hypersensitivity, and it's fascinating that even now I'll catch myself saying stuff or doing things or yeah. learning more. I'm like, oh my gosh, like yeah, I just blew that. You know. Anyway, let's talk about language because I know this is a common passion of ours. Yeah, it it, it, it I mean. We, you often say it, I often say it, every word counts. And, um, uh, and so it's really, really important. Like I can have healthy attitudes. I can have uh, loving actions, meaning I can actually be loving LGBT folks, but because of the trauma that they have experienced, even if I love them, and even if I have an attitude of wanting to be caring, inclusive, if I actually use words that reduce them from their identity, how they self-reveal their identity to a behavior, if you will, whoa, I, I have just layered into my conversation condemnation or some version of it. Um, uh, homophobia, hatefulness, that's how it's going to be internalized. When we say every word counts, we don't mean what did you mean to say in your heart? No, no, we mean what did they hear in their heart? And we've got to live with that kind of commitment to say, no, every word counts. Even if I know I love people, every word counts. I cannot use language that's um, unintentionally offensive to LGBT folks. So uh, resorting to cliches, um, um, love the sinner, hate the sin. Okay, well, I met a gay activist in Houston that did not grow up in the church 
and he came to disrupt my event. At four hours later, he did not disrupt my event. That he did come up and introduce himself, and he said, "I came here to just totally just shred you to pieces." I said, "Is it is it safe for us to talk? Are you okay?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. It's you're. I'm not going to attack you." I said, "Well, I just want to make sure you're you're comfortable." I said, "Why did you not disrupt the event?" He said, "Well, I've never been in the church. I didn't grow up in the church. I came here because." I have learned from the Christians that come into our community. I have seen such hateful things, and what you call the gospel—the love of Christ, the idea that Christ died for uh, people who need God—the only thing I've ever heard about what you call the gospel is love the sinner, hate the sin. That's the only thing that Christians have ever said to me in the gay community when they come into our community. And so, like cliches like that, I meet church kids. That they have heard that all their life, mm-hmm. all their life. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And so these cliches that we resort to when we're uncomfortable with people. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, if we're if we're in conversation with anyone, and we resort to a cliche, I guarantee you, there's a huge risk factor that we went to a cliche because we are feeling judgmental thoughts towards someone, or we're uncomfortable with someone. So it's kind of like just a broader principle. Don't fall into cliches um, when you're engaging anyone, really. Um, yeah. Oh, by the way, I bet there's some of us that are married that our spouse, our spouses might say, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, you always jump to the cliche to what? Defend yourself or say you didn't do what you did or what have you. So we've got to be careful about that. Um, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You know, that's another one. Now, uh, I want to keep the focus on the lessons that we need to learn in engaging LGBT folks, but an example of a cliche that's formed in the gay Christian world, gay Christians that are typically affirming, but even some non-affirming gay Christians are saying is, you know, it's a cliche, Adam and Eve were not straight. Okay, look, I, I understand the point of that statement, i.e., oh, we didn't have concepts of sexual orientation and identity at that time. But when someone that's gay and Christian says that, what it comes across the other side of the bridge in the mm-hmm. evangelical community is that you're against heterosexuality as God's design. Mm-hmm. And so it, any, any of these cliches, so on either side mm-hmm. of the bridge, we could lose people. We could confuse people. We could um, try to be impl- uh, introducing nuance to lead to thoughtfulness. Yeah. But the way I say it is if I lose people with my nuance, I lose influence. And if I lose influence, there is not growth either of the gospel reaching LGBT people or growth in terms of equipping churches right. to love LGBT folks better. That- um you know, oh, go, go I was just going to say that that's I, I because you and I do work in mainly conservative circles, we typically as good missionaries try and challenge them in the areas they need to grow. But that that is a good point that it does kind of happen from for lack of I hate making sides, but it's just from more progressive versus more traditional minded yeah. uh, people. You know, love is love. It's like, well. Yeah, I. What, what does that mean? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> love is love and God is holy. You know. Yeah, like, I mean that doesn't uh, that doesn't help us understand sexual yeah. ethics. You know, or, or like you know we I accept everyone. You know, well, that's sure God does too. But what's the sexual ethic He's accepting them into? You know, like that's yeah. 
Um, See, I I do think lazy cliches don't help good, solid interaction conversation on on both sides. What are some others that you've seen um, on the conservative end, you know, like like the gay lifestyle and some of these, are these some of the big ones that you hit on or? Yeah. Anything lifestyle, gay lifestyle, <laughs> his lifestyle, her lifestyle, their lifestyle, that lifestyle, anything that reduces the self-report, I am gay, that's my identity, to a lifestyle, i.e. that's the behavior that you're engaged in, all of a sudden it's going to be extremely, extremely offensive. And uh, parents will need help letting go of that. They'll need their church leaders to model a teaching of letting go of that so that then they can let go of it. If they're just called to let go of it, but their church leaders won't, they will actually feel like they might be disobeying their church leaders or not uh, staying within a biblical script if they drop that kind of language. So we need top-down leadership that's modeling, hey, yeah, it's a godly thing. It's a it's a missional responsibility for us to not use language that uh, reduces the humanity of people, that yeah. dismisses the legitimacy of the experience that they're they're that they're sharing, yeah. in a sense. Um, uh, um, life, choice, anything, choice, right. lifestyle, <laughs> choice, alternative lifestyle, sexual preference. Um, uh, these things are going to be offensive, but but now more personally. And you may be very uncomfortable with it, not you, Preston, but, you know, people can be uncomfortable with this. But if we don't relate to people based on how they self-identify, I'm speaking of transgender folks, if we don't call people by the name that they call themselves just because we don't want to compromise something, we're not going to have much of a gospel reach to that individual. If we can't get there on their uh, preferred pronoun and their chosen name, we have a we have a gospel reach problem because if we don't have relational proximity there is no advancement of the gospel at least through us god can still work and if there is no a relational trust then there can't be that proximity and every missionary knows the ultimate goal is build the trust and the relationship that leads to proximity. That's how the gospel, the kingdom advances from one person to another. Obviously, the Holy Spirit can bring whole peoples to Christ. So I don't want to reduce that God can't do it, but I want to be working with God. I don't want the Holy Spirit to have to be going and working around me because I'm doing damage to God reaching people. I don't want to look in God's eyes one day and say, yeah, you were the reason, Bill, and I had to you know, go get the ones that got propelled away from the 99. I, I want to be with God going to the ones and, you know, and comforting them and caring for them and inviting them, you know, back to the church, if you yeah. will, or back home, whatever that looks like. Um, you know, this can look even more offensive, things that we resort to. I hear it all the time, even today, things like, well, I'm not going to be part of their delusion. <laughs> you know, like, in other words, okay, if there's someone that's trans, they're de- they're uh, delusional, and I'm not going to play their game. Okay, fine. You you can be right, but you can have a very wrong attitude before God. I don't know. All the rightness in the world doesn't make the gospel right. Mm-hmm. We have to handle our theological doctrinal beliefs with a posture that also is thoughtful in light of our own need for God's grace. Right. In other words, if we really take an inventory of our need for how much how much we need Christ, yeah. 
if we really take an inventory of the depth of our own depravity, right. we will have a much more humble posture in extending God's love to people and relate to them where they are. Yeah, that, that's, I want to come back to the pronouns. I, I can't let you let you get away just with this short <laughs> and you and I are on the same page. So there's nothing here, but I, I would love yeah. to dive in deeper, but even that I, I've, I've heard people say that playing into their delusion, just that, that word alone. I mean, you can, you can believe that gender dysphoria is a, let's just use the phrase psychological condition or something a little more yep. neutral delusion creates this image. That's just not, True. I mean, it's just not, that's yeah. not the right, it, it, that's such a de- unnecessary dehumanizing word. Um, and it's just, it's just such a lazy, easy way to keep actual people at arm's distance, isn't it? I mean, to say, yeah, I don't know, like that, I understand that I under. okay, so I understand the, the, some, some of the intellectual reasoning that would lead to that um, pushback, but obviously they haven't hung out with trans people if they would say that. I mean, that's just my... Yeah, that's know. exactly right. <laughs> Paul, he writes this uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. He, he says, um, well, I'm going to give the short version of it. He says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, mm. some might be saved. Yeah. He'll do a lot so that even some might come to Christ. And, um, you know, like people ask me today, well, what do you do with 40 genders? And I think, well, what would Paul do? And I think, <laughs> oh, I can see that you have many genders, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and in other words, Paul went to peoples who had many gods and he started with, I can see that you have many gods. Uh-huh. In other words, relating to people where yeah. they are as they are and then trusting the Holy Spirit to advance the kingdom. So, um, we've got great examples in scripture of, yeah. uh, from, from, from Jonah even doing it unwillingly <laughs> to the gospel <laughs> mandate issued uh, in the very beginning of Genesis and uh, with Abraham all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, all yeah. the way to Revelation. We've got amazing examples of God saying, I want my people to go reach the peoples of the world. Yeah. for Christ. How do, how how do you with the pronoun thing? How do you respond to people who say, "Well, that's just not telling the truth." And let so avoiding the let's just I already gave my spiel on why the word delusion isn't helpful at all. Um but you people who say you're you're just you're just reinforcing a say let's just say a wrong and incorrect view of somebody else's self. How how is that loving to just reinforce you know, this dysphoria and this, well, they wouldn't say that, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in you and I both know this is an, this is an extreme example, uh, meaning this, it doesn't happen in many people's lives, but there are people anatomically born male who at a DNA and an endocrine level system basically have mm-hmm. a female endocrinology. Uh, female uh, genes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people can be immune to that and it has no impact on them. Other times it dictates everything about their gender. So now everything is on a spectrum of experience across nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. But just saying there is a provable known fact that on that spectrum, there are some people that literally are quote unquote born that way. 
Again, it would be a very small number of individuals statistically. But nonetheless, on the spectrum, that exists. So just saying that that's not a delusion. Uh, an intersex person can be born with ambiguous genitalia or uh, even uh, uh, in, in, I basically just described a, a kind of intersex yeah. condition uh, in, in the inside biology that may not affect the anatomy. But just saying that um, that individual, um, they can be engaged with not anyone knowing their intersex if they actually had surgery that then led to, let's say, uh, uh, um, presenting as something different than how people have known them for yeah. much of their life, they're gonna get they're gonna get accused of things. They're gonna be condemned. They're gonna be uh, people are gonna deal with them very suspiciously. So just saying, there are some people that are born that way, and for all trans people that I've ever met, it is absolutely. I could even say it is rational. It is, it is rational to experience what they are experiencing in light of what hmm. either how they were born or the things that may have happened in their life. Hmm. Okay. Um, and also, I think, well, yeah. Um, yeah. I've had to wrestle with this a lot in my, in the book that I just wrote, I spent almost a whole chapter on the pronoun thing. And really, and I, I tried to give a, I mean, I, I, a few years ago, I, I came on this landed on the side of use someone's pronouns. Um, and I, but I wanted to give it another shake, like true, like I'll change my view if, if there's better arguments otherwise. Uh, I, interestingly, John Piper, <laughs> you know, who's no progressive. I mean, he, he said he wouldn't use pronouns, but he would use somebody's name, whatever they prefer. He would see a difference yeah. there because a name is, it's funny because he said like a name is just, that's just a cultural thing. That's not, I'm like, well, <laughs> pronouns kind of are too and names actually yeah. i mean if a male yeah. wants to be called like you know stephanie or something like that's a clear crossover you know yeah. like, so I, I it was interesting that he made that distinction but um yeah, yeah i thought that was yeah interesting that but then yeah. others would say no i'm gonna i'm gonna speak truth i'm gonna use somebody's the, the pronoun that matches their biological sex because that's what they are um what about the, okay what about this i've actually talked to secular like medical professionals who aren't Christians who don't have any problem with at least an adult transitioning, but they would be more nervous with this kind of what they would consider like a medicalization of some of the youth with kind of the explosion yeah. of teens. And some of them are just being fast tracked into transitioning. Um, and they would say in that when it comes to like a young teenager, that's are they, are they acting like they are because they're trans or are they just being 13, you know? And they're, yeah. you know, wake up one day and demand that, you know, even though they're a biological female, they're demanding to be called he. I've heard medical professionals say, more like psychologists and counselors saying, there are some places where a parent just needs to kind of step in and say, stop it. It was kind of their... <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I've actually heard, I've talked to, and this is so anecdotal, so I almost hesitate saying that some young 20-something detransitioners saying the same thing. Like, how come nobody, like question me on and they would even say almost delusion like i was being 13 i was how come no one i would have just affirmed everything yeah. i was doing and now i don't have breasts anymore you know and why didn't you just yeah. tell me do you see a distinction in some trends and young teenagers versus everything we're saying with the general kind of how we'd approach say an adult or oh yeah i mean in fact there's intersex people that are very upset that 
uh, doctors or even parents made surgical decisions on their behalf, either at birth or before puberty, and that they desperately wish that that decision would have been left to them in adulthood once they understand more about their experience. Mm -hmm. And I'd say for any kid that's experiencing gender dysphoria, look, I, oh, the compassion I have, yeah. uh, the when I really look at what that experience is like, it breaks my heart. I, 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 I wish there was some way I could just hug yeah. a kid with dysphoria and then it just go away yeah. and everything would be fine. It's not that simple, but my point is my heart is so aligned toward wanting to make them feel comfortable, wanting to lower their anxiety, things like this. Mm -hmm. uh, but that kind of does passion to care for them never equates to encouraging them uh, to, to transition or to go on hormone hormones. I would, I would love it if kids could be so loved by their pastors, so yeah. loved in their families that, that they can have that kind of mm. intimate connection of, you know, mom and dad tucking them in bed at night, you know, uh, the being in safe spaces where dad could say, Hey, Hey son, you know, how's your dysphoria? this today yeah. you know uh, and like like a dad or a mom could be like a a best friend that's the most trusted place to come and that the the on the big painful days that those could be that could be an opportunity where connection and conversation and family closeness it it, it helps you know that's what my hope is so that it could allow a kid to navigate um that dysphoria and hold out yeah. on some of these more invasive, sometimes permanent decisions. When I say permanent, meaning the it, anything can be reversed, but that doesn't mean that that there's no damage in the process. The damage can be permanent for the rest of your life. So just right. saying, we would do anything to get the posture uh, enhanced to where a kid could feel so safe, so secure, so loved that even in the midst of them carrying that load, um, that they could make it into adulthood. Mm -hmm. If they can make it into adulthood, this is not a promise or a guarantee. It's just to say, I, I've cared for dozens of kids yeah. that the dysphoria was crippling at yeah. 13, 14, 15, and they are now cisgender in their early 20s, and uh, some of them have gotten married, and uh, like a male getting married to a female and feeling content as a male. Wow. So. In light of that, in light of the possibilities, yeah, I would not want youth making those highly invasive, sometimes with permanent consequences, those kinds of decisions. I would not want that happening. Secular science says be cautious. Um, I think as Christians, our idea about <laughs> making adjustments to our gender, I, I yeah. we we don't necessarily have clobber verses, but I think humility before God based on how we're born would just say, Oh, let me, let me be cautious about this. Let me be, uh, let me take a pause before I just jump into this. And of course in youth, uh, culture, the opposite message is very common. I'm now, one last thing, there are a lot of kids that are actually identifying based upon the cool factor of a young ide youth ideology that just says, hey, we don't have to be bound by male or female anymore. Right. Most of those kids that f have that kind of belief, literally in their 20s, 
they'll be living in, uh, their gender in alignment with their birth gender. It's just going to happen. So at that very high rate, like some people say 16 to 20% of kids may be identifying as either non-binary or queer or genderqueer or, or trans, a lot of that will go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's youth ideology. And just being humble, you know, there's been every generation that has a certain youth I- ideology that leads to a certain segment of that youth generation identifying in a certain way that upsets a lot of people. And then over time it can go away. So this just happens to be a very invasive thing that if kids literally are not trans and they actually do take hormones or do, you know, do surgeries, you know, like these, this is really scary. Well, this is starting. I have a blog coming out. I mean, it's like a, 4,000 word blog we've been working on for months tracing the history of the Tavistock gender clinic in the UK, which has been kind of a microcosm of this very conversation because there's so much controversy. And I won't get into the details. You can read the blog, but especially in 2019 and in 2020, there's lawsuits happening. And I mean, all kinds of stuff coming out. Well, I think over 35, 36 clinicians had re- has re- have resigned over the last four years over what they would see as overly medicalizing and fast tracking kids. And, and it's, it's a, it's, it's a mess. It's well, let me first of all say it's, it's sad for various reasons. Um, even what would lead a kid to come in, I, I want to know well, what, what do you, what are you going through? Like you don't just wake up one day out in a vacuum and start yeah. questioning your gender. Even if you end up re-identifying in a few years, that's sad, whatever you're, you know, and yeah. then, and then to be told in some cases, well, your two options are suicide or transition knowing the suicide rate is horrifically high. Um, I mean, there's so many, it's, it's sad on so many levels uh, and yet there is an urgency here. So anyway, my, my question is, um, because I get this question a lot, Bill. So this is this is a, this is on the air, but I would I, I almost want to ask this off, off the air, but we'll just do it for the recording here. I get asked by parents quite often. More recently, you know, I have a teenager; they're fourteen. They are so adamant that hormones are, is the only thing to do. I live in the. I just literally one woman said, "I live in California. That if I say no." child services will come and take my kid away because I'll be accused of reparative therapy or conversion therapy because I'm not affirming their gender identity, meaning I'm not going and buying them the hormones that they are demanding. What do I do? And I, 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 I've, I've sat there saying, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you can say to, to a 14. I'm a, like I've got three teenage daughters. Okay. And they're, they're amazing. They're not, I'm blessed that they're, you know, they're, they're not going through that at least. Um, but I understand that tension of like, how do you get through to the mind of a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old person who's so dead set on something? It sounds like you have had some success in helping parents with that kind of profile. I'm not talking about the kid who has been from three years old, severe, dysphoria that you know i'm talking about that kind of it seems like there's some social thing going on here it's kind of out of nowhere we know there's a growing spike in these cases what what have you had some success in helping parents navigate where their kids aren't going and taking these evasive surgeries and yes um 
and it, it's both and, you know, like there are kids that will be determined to do what they're determined to do. There are cities where kids could, without their parents' knowledge, get on a, a subway and go to a clinic and obtain hormones. So, uh, I mean, there could be things that kids are doing outside of even the knowledge of their parents. And, uh, and on the one hand, higher level, that's what kids do, they end up doing things their parents are not aware of, but this is a really scary uh, example of that. So the breakthrough that we've had is not that we can make kids stop feeling like they're trans or stop identifying a certain way or stop feeling uh, gender dysphoria per se. But what we can do is we can build intimacy to where a lot of that anxiety is being talked about in safe conversation with mom and dad in a realm of acceptance and love and care, rather than uh, in the early stage of this journey, parents can be in stages of grief, uh, dismissing it, denial, uh, caught off guard in shock, anger, you know, and so like we've got to help parents transition well through those stages of grief. So the way the way I often say it to mom and dad when I'm talking to them privately, hey, you bring your grief to God, you bring your grief to trusted others, and you can bring that grief to me. Come talk to me about your grief anytime because you need to process your grief away from your child so that you're not inflicting it on your child. That's a good one. That is not going to help your child make better decisions if you're coming at this through only – an authority framework, if you will. So ultimately, we're looking to maintain authority for parents, but authority with credibility mm. rather than forced authority that actually propels a kid further away from mom and dad, relationally in their heart or even physically. So understand there are trans kids that are homeless, not primarily because their parents said, get out. They left because the dysphoria was so painful, they couldn't get what they had asked their parents for. And they took the risk of living life uh, couch surfing uh, in order to obtain uh, you know, uh, hormones or whatever it is they're looking at. So boy, if we could create safety, connection, conversation, then literally in the example that you gave, I'd say let the state I mean, excuse me, I'm not inviting this, but, you know, let the state come into my home and really measure the quality of the love in this family. In other words, I'd like to so love my trans kid that even they in their heart, in the midst of gender dysphoria, that they would know in their heart of hearts, no, my parents are loving rather than rejecting. Okay. They are accepting rather than uh, uh, uh you know, rejecting. They're not yelling at me. They're not right. hitting me. They're not doing ugly things that are abusing me. You know, in other words, I know I have a loving mom and dad, but a kid developmentally, a teenager is going to have a hard time feeling that. Then if you're really wrestling with, if you're dealing with constant gender dysphoria, it cripples you. It cripples right. your emotional security, your, your mental health. So your ability to even internalize a loving mom and dad, you know, so in other words, it's going to take, in other words, there's no guarantee that it can happen, 
but it means parents are going to have to deeply, deeply love and care and connect and relate in order for that child to have that experience. My mom and dad are with me rather than against me. So you would and still- we've seen kids that, do, that their parents do this. It becomes a conversation. They're talking about it. Um, and, and, and there are kids that do outgrow the dysphoria mm-hmm. and it's gone four years from them. Yeah. And it's not that parents necessarily heal that per se. It's whatever reason, you know, developmentally it was here and now it's gone. And that's not a promise. It doesn't happen in every scenario. Just saying it happens at a high enough rate to have hope to do good things rather than rejecting things. Would you still advise a parent to say, no, I'm not going to buy you hormones, but, or let's delay this for a year or let's, I'll meet you halfway. And Uh, we, we uh, talk with parents in front of their children about, uh, and separately without their children being there about this curve of moving from parental authority to influence. And, mm. uh, and so for kids that are 13, I'll be honest, I'm not going to be talking to my 13 year old about a negotiation for letting them make a decision on hormones. Right. I mean, in the, any time in the near future, but if you have a, a kid that's just turned 16 and the next two year trajectory is them about to approach legal adulthood, Mm -hmm. suddenly we have to change the conversation. It doesn't mean our no's become yeses, but it could become maybe become something like, hey, look, mom and dad, we're we're saying no to this, but now that you're 16 uh, or whatever, uh, uh, some parents might do it at 14 or whatever, we, we will definitely call you by your preferred name or your chosen name and your preferred pronouns, okay, okay. you know? Yeah. So like, let's look at it incrementally and just say, okay, mom and dad, whether we like it or not, we all have to let go of our kids. In other words, our yeah. kids are only going to have to make their own decisions about how to live before God rather than as yeah. a reaction to us. Yeah. So in the early teenage years, parents should be very protective yeah. with a lot more authority. But at 16, 17, we better be kind of like, painting a picture that we're letting go of our kids, that we're setting them uh, into young adulthood to make their own decisions. So the thing I want a kid, my child to know is I want, you know, hey, you know, son, mom and dad don't want you to do this right now. But when you're 18, you can make that decision. Some parents might say 17 or 16, whatever age you choose. At this age, you can make that decision for yourself. And I want you to know, when you make that decision, no matter what it is, our love for you and your welcome home doesn't change at all. You are ours. God gave you to us. It's been the greatest privilege and joy to be your dad. And uh, dad is always here for you no matter what. So if I can paint a picture that when you are able to make your decisions, that that doesn't change my love, then my authority can actually have a deeper level of integrity to it and I can have more influence, i.e. my child can maybe internalize more of my care for them. That's so good, Bill. Well, it's been an hour. I've taken you a few minutes over your time. Um, This was long overdue, man. I can't believe (laughs) it. In in the in the real world, without a pandemic, we might run into each other uh, uh, in some city or something. But right now, it's been too many months since we've had an opportunity to talk. So, President, thank you so much. 
So, no, my pleasure. Again, it's guidingfamilies.com. Um, if you uh, have a loved one who is LGBT+, plus, um, you got to go get this book. Um, if you are living in a cave and you don't know any LGBT people... <laughs> Oh, that's, that was, that was snarky. I shouldn't have said that, but I don't edit my videos, So it is what it is. But yeah, I mean, I, just basically if you're a Christian, you got to read this resource. It's so good. It's not, I mean, it's a hundred pages plus tons of colored. I mean, the, the, just the aesthetics of this book is just incredible. Um, and then the other website postureshift.com is that yes. okay? And you can learn, learn more about, um, Bill's ministry. I mean, just, uh, if you're a Christian leader <laughs> and you have not, um, contacted or had bill in or know of bill you 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 now do so there's no excuses so postureship.com he just has such incredible insight bill thanks so much for being on theology and i appreciate you brother thank you preston appreciate you too love you all very much thank Thank you. you you too man